Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. In recent months, both Masa Kekana and Govin Whittles brought us two heartbreaking and enraging stories. The first, a long-running investigation into the inhumane conditions at Ikwesi Lokusa's special school in Mtata, where children with disabilities were forced to look after themselves, crawling around naked and sleeping on brick beds. Our second story, which also consists of multiple exposés, followed the devastating trail of suspended lawyer Zuko Nonguba. The Eastern Cape lawyer had allegedly stolen millions of rands from families of disabled children, money owed to them following medical negligence claims against the state. Both these stories impacted Masa and Govin in profound ways, and now in a podcast exclusive, they reflect on these stories and the difficulty in stepping away once back home. Govin, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I actually needed it more than I have thought. The more we've been prepping and discussing the need to talk about this, the more I've realized that it's actually a very necessary conversation amongst us as well as presenters and reporters of these very difficult stories. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. And these are two hectic stories and it's not the kind of thing that just goes away so hopefully this conversation will be insightful and give some insight into what happened while we were shooting i think that it'll be equally important to talk about where we are right now and how we're feeling after going through all of that oh absolutely and what i found to be also be a common thread i mean there's so many commonalities between the story that you did and the story that i've been covering as well Of course, them both being based in the Eastern Cape, both about children with special needs who have been basically abandoned by everybody who's supposed to be taking care of them the most. Both having been covered on Cod Blanche before. These aren't new stories. We were going back to old stories. I mean, yours goes as far back as 2018 already when Cod Blanche investigated. And when I watched the piece that you did, what struck me was that when we had gone there in 2018, the government had made promises that said this is going to get better. But of course, we saw from when you went back is that it didn't get better, it's even worse. Now, for us who are sitting at home and in the studio and watching you go into that space and spend that time at a school that was really once a state-of-the-art facility that has assisted so many in need, and to see it in such a dilapidated and ugly, very ugly, ugly state, walking in there, did you anticipate that it would be that bad? No, not at all. I thought we'd go in there and then firstly, I thought they'd they'd recognize Taryn. They'd say like, oh, so glad that you're back. Come, let me show you. It was terrible, Um, completely terrible. And I think what hurt more was not just the fact that the situation had deteriorated, but that the attitude of the people there had just become stone cold. Mm. That things were worse and they didn't seem to care that carte blanche was back. And this time they were more concerned with hiding how how much worse things had become than actually answering questions. 
I suppose that does reflect a sense of shame or guilt, but we were basically just dismissed. And that's that's the thing that these people made the promises to to make things better, and they know that they made those promises, and they know that they were filmed doing it, and that it went out on air. But they just don't care that they didn't keep them. That's what really broke my heart, and and you know the children suffer because of it. That's really the thing, and that's what's harder about this than the other cases where people have been let down is that these are vulnerable children mm. where you almost get a sense that because some of these kids can't speak for themselves. And I think that that's really what broke me the most. For me, it's also when you're in the field and just the nuances that you get and the people that you carry with you, you meet those children. I'll never forget Avile. I'll never forget Naoma. I'll never forget those case studies. They're not just case studies. These are people who you end up spending time with. You take their pain on. Witnessing such abject poverty as well is traumatic, but experiencing it, what they have to go through on a daily, for me, I often feel a sense of guilt when I walk away. And often, obviously, we, you know, stay in a B&B or whatever, and it's a decent accommodation. And I just think of what we've just left behind. And I know there's only so much that we can do. And being there and covering it is of utmost importance. But sometimes I feel the sense of guilt. And I remember the second time we went back to cover this Zukunungruba story, I went to one of the homes. Just to explain it, it's just the former Transcar, everything is just so far apart. The village yeah, so, really so you're driving there, right? You're driving so, for hours. Yeah, and then was it difficult to reach these areas? Because I tell you, when we went with Taran, we had to cross like roads that were that were barely there just to get to some of these areas. But some of them weren't even roads. I don't think they even qualified. To, you know what I mean? It's just. And then while you're driving, you're thinking about these kids, right? And you're thinking, yeah. what am I going to find? Am I going to approach this properly? But then in your case, you must also have been thinking about like this guy, Zukunonuba, is almost a billionaire off of these kids. So you kind of, were you, were you getting angry in the car as you were approaching? Oh, absolutely. To be very honest, between Taryn, myself and the crew, there were a lot of cuss words that were going on in that car, I must tell you. Yeah. Very, very upsetting. And when you see how far out these people are, there's absolutely no way they were going to even be able to get the help. It's just very, very, very far places. So remote, so isolated. I'm talking serious, serious poverty. And to witness that and then also know the numbers that we're working with, hundreds yeah. of millions of rands that have been awarded to a single man. And these people have to live in these conditions. And then the guilt of going back to my B&B, it's sometimes all a bit overwhelming. But I always remember who I'm doing this for. And it's definitely those children. And I'm fully aware that it's very difficult to also just sit on your couch and watch that story. Because being a part of filming it and being part of investigating it is difficult. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes as well. Did you have to did you have to take a break while filming to compose yourself? I definitely did. Many times. Yeah. Many times. They sometimes struggle to get the shots when I'm not even tearing up because I'm such an extremist. You know, when I go in hard, I go in hard, right? But then when it's a sad situation, I'm really emotional and the tears are just ready. Credit to Taryn, dude, because she's so good at reading which mm -hmm. moments are appropriate to use for the piece. Absolutely, yeah. And she was, she was like, she 
we did a tour before we even started filming anything with a camera, right? Back when we were on the cell phone doing the undercover visuals. And then there was just this one moment where I couldn't take it, man. Just these kids, man. And and I just kept thinking about my own experience at school and how different they have it. And then it's the fact that these are children who appear to be like treated with almost a level of disdain. That's what struck me in your story. You know, those children didn't even at least have the love of the, being raised by their grandmother or that mother in their home, at least. Well, we did go to see the mother of, of one of the the boys there, the one who uh, had uh, who, who was sexually assaulted, he says, by his house father. And then that's when we had to we drove like two hours into a village in Kumbu. And when we got there. We're driving, and then I'm like, yo, how am I going to do this? Because now I'm I'm concerned, I'm outraged, but I want to do it properly. And then Taryn says, it's going to be strictly awesome, bro. And I'm like, yo, now I have to still try to pull out my best awesome. And it's transcribed also, so it's not, yeah. not the superficial one that I know. Yep, you preach it to the choir. But even with that, Taryn was able to like, help me get through it. And you know what? Once you start speaking to the parents or some of the other case studies, you become so involved in the story that mm -hmm. the, the brokenness of the communication seems to just fade into nothingness because you, you're already reading each other's emotions so much. But then that's the stuff that really stayed with me long after I even left that place. I feel like I know those people. How do you feel about the families that Sukunonguba uh, took claims for and didn't pay out? I feel so protective over those families. I feel like they're my family. So we had been trying to get Zugonomuba to speak an account. And of course, he had been ducking and diving. And finally, Taryn had organized a sting operation where one of the moms had agreed to come to Joburg and she was going to meet Zugonomuba in a hotel. And we were then going to be able to doorstop and confront him. Needless to say, he didn't pitch. but we at least knew that they are in contact and they are calling each other. So we could at least nab him on the phone. And the day that we had planned to go and do this call, we had to drive all the way to Rustenburg because that's where she was. And that's the kind of dedication that we put into these stories, wherever it is. I mean, it was no longer in the Eastern Cape. We're back in Joburg. And here we were now driving all the way to Rustenburg. But an interesting thing is that that day, I had been booked off because I had a family funeral and my family needed me. And I sent my cousin a text to say, I don't think I'm going to make it to your mom's funeral. In fact, what I did was I said, we're finally going to be able to catch Zugonomuba. And he knew exactly who I was talking about because the story, I'm so immersed in it. They know exactly who I'm talking about. And I said to him, but here's the catch. It would mean I'd have to miss your mom's funeral. Yeah. And my cousin said, it's worth it. And you better go and do it for those children. And he never held it against me. My family, everybody understood that that came first. And all we got out of him was about 90 seconds of that conversation. I missed a family funeral for 90 seconds to be able to nab that man. And when we yeah. speak about immersing ourselves and knowing these families, when you ask, how do I feel about them? That's how I feel about them. You know, one of the best ways to process stories like these for journalists is through accountability. You only really get over it 
once the wrong has been set right. Yeah. Or once some action has been taken. And until it does, or until something's happened, it kind of just lingers through each day or through each interaction. In my case, it lingers through the way that I interact with my daughter, when I go home, when I see my family and everything that they have. It's it's hard for me now to just accept that there are children of the same age living on two different sides of the spectrum and extreme sides of the spectrum where there's such dedication and care for this group of kids that I'm exposed to in my home life. Yeah. But then on the other end, it's like these other kids are so desperate for some love and proper care. And it's hard to process because all I really want and, and the only thing that's really going to make it better is if something is done about it. But just coming back to the other thing, you know, with the principal in our story, our story this time had a principal who wouldn't answer questions, which was very different from the first time Carte Blanche did it because the principal had an open door policy. So this time there was actually lengthy engagement with the principal on a cordial basis by Taryn before we even set out to get the cameras in there and do the interview. And then on the day, the principal just changes on us once it had become clear that we had a better understanding of what was actually happening at the school and the sense of decay that took place in between the last story and this story. It just changed, switched sides, didn't want to talk to us. And this is from someone who the previous day was okay to talk. So that's very surprising. And people think that was the first time we saw the principal engage with the principal. No, that principal just changed their attitude completely. The same with the guy from the Department of Education. Do you know the official from the Department of Education was actually in Mtata while we were in Mtata? So we say to him, come to the school. Let's do the interview at the school because we want you to see what's happening. And he ducks and dives, he ducks and dives. And eventually he's like, no, drive to East London and then I'll see you there in East London. So Tara and myself and our crew are driving to East London and he's also driving to East London and we're going to go meet each other there and we're coming from the same place. Then we get to East London and suddenly he's not available and he schedules another day. So it did seem like they were avoiding being questioned on site, almost as if they knew what what was happening there and they were trying to deflect attention. But luckily we don't give up, you know, that's just the nature of how carte blanche works. We were always going to get that interview and we were always going to ask him those tough questions. Fortunately, when the cameras were on and we did those things, he had nowhere to hide. He just he just had to answer. I like that context you've given because the way she reacted, she reacted as if it was the first time she's seeing you guys. She threatened to cry. She was very dismissive sure. and quite rude. We'd been there three days before we did that. She'd been seeing us on campus, not saying a word. It's astounding because there's this look of surprise on her face. But I'm learning that that's something that happens when people are trying to duck accountability. Yeah. Uh, but, Yeah. But the thing is, you know, the pressure doesn't only come from carte blanche. It also comes from the viewers. And, mm. and that's mm. the main thing because they don't let up. Have you been getting phone calls or, or messages? Because oh. the Zuko thing is huge in phone political calls, circles. emails, tweets. It's literally become my baby. Thanks to Taryn and all the hard work that she also puts into this. But even whenever there's an update or anything of the sort, there's, there's a lot of engagement that I'm getting on it. There's a lot of interest. One thing about our viewers, they are as persistent as, as the reporters on the ground. They are as dedicated and they will push. And they're heartbroken, I'll tell you that much. Mm. They were devastated by the Kwezi Lokusa story. 
I got a lot of messages from people who were just saying that they were so broken by what they had seen, particularly the visuals of the children. But then, you know, Taryn is so amazing and she's been coordinating all of this. These viewers of Carte Blanche have been reaching out, Masa, to give donations of mattresses, of hygiene packs, toys for the kids. They're not only heartbroken, they've been moved into action. Mm. Gift of the Givers is going to go to the school with a truck full of supplies. So even where the Department of Education is failing to step up, South Africans are stepping up. Yeah. And, and it's through this episode. And Taryn is, is so committed to this story. She's not only been getting regular updates from the school about what's happening or what's not being done. She's also coordinating with all these people who are trying to donate and give something there. And pretty soon, hopefully, we'll be able to do a handover of relief packs. And what we really want to see is the demolishing of those brick beds, which we've been told is going to happen. So we want to be there for that, because that is going to be a symbolic thing, you know, that uh, these brick beds that were built during the apartheid era are now going to be demolished, and these kids will finally get normal beds. So, I mean, that's just hats off to Taryn, man. She's uh, a person of integrity. Yeah, but really also just a committed storyteller that doesn't just do stories for the sake of it. She has the saying, right? What happens is if your intentions are pure, everything will come to you. The story will come to you. The people who you need to speak to will make themselves available. And that's just it, you know, not doing it just for the sake of it being a good story. It's no, it's indicative of intentions. her. Yeah. yeah, it's indicative of her, of being a genuine, really good human being. And that you feel, and you feel that in her stories, and you feel that when you are on shoot with her, it's not a story. It is somebody's life. It is real life experiences. When you were speaking earlier about people not taking accountability and not there being any resolution, and that being disheartening, and you're feeling like this, Like, why are we doing this if, like, we're going to report and nothing changes? When you hear about that, that viewers have been reaching out, that the gift of the Mm -hmm. givers has now come on board, it really makes it all worthy. You know, we had our first story in Zubonomba and we had Armand Duplessis, who was a viewer who happened to be a lawyer watching and he offered to donate a wheelchair for one of the children. He offered more than a wheelchair, in fact. So they contacted special needs facility that will help some of the kids. And it was beyond the story now. It was actually about helping them beyond what the LPC was doing and what Zugo Nongoba was doing to them. Mm-hmm. And not only did he offer all those things, Taryn then twisted his arm after that insert to say, listen, Armand, you're a lawyer, you're a human rights lawyer. How about you represent these kids pro bono? And Credit to Armand and his team and attorneys, they jumped on board. And now, as we speak, Govan, that legal team has grown. It is a heavyweight legal team consisting Mm. of Judge Desai as well. And they are taking this on head on. They are as passionate as we are about it. I sat in on one of their meetings and strategy sessions, and I felt confident and I felt so great that the wheels of justice were finally turning. And that really makes me feel so good. It makes me feel like, let's keep going. Let's keep covering these stories as much as it really does weigh heavy on the heart. When you come back home, when you speak of interacting with your daughter and 
feeling this unfairness that there are children on the other side who are not experiencing that. It's painful. One of the kids that I met there while we were still filming, she just kept staring at me and staring at me. And then I was playing with her and I realized she didn't have toys. She didn't, oh, man. It was such a luxury to have. So I had my notepad and pen that I was using during the interview and I started scribbling on it and I gave her, I mean, of course she can't hold a pen properly, but I was trying to teach her and she thoroughly enjoyed just scribbling on my notebook. It was, I mean, the joy that came to her face and I thought that's all she needed. Just like, yeah. it's it just some, some sort of fun, some sort of relief. She doesn't even have a toy, something as simple as a toy. It's a, it's a devastating situation, but I take heart from the fact that I know that we're not done yet on mm. either of these stories. This is not something that we're going to let go, and we won't rest until we're able to achieve some sort of justice for the victims of Zugunangmuba and the kids at the KwaZulu-Kusa Special Needs School. And I know that sooner or later, we'll be back with Taryn Crossman in the Eastern Cape. <laughs> That's for sure. I do look forward to going back to the Eastern Cape because, sadly, the story isn't done. The children have not received the money as yet, even though there is about 101 million rand that is available to them now. And it is a fraction of what is actually owed to them. But anything will do right now. And I really do want to know, there were a lot of comments about how can one man be so evil? And I, I understand that question. I understand it because... Some of the information we can't even put in the story. There's so much. You know, many of these mothers, of course, they all of them didn't know that they were owed these millions. But what he had done over the years was give them like a minimal, you know, like a grand a month here and there, ad hoc, three grand here and there. If you call and you say you really need it, you're broke. And one of the moms, we actually did include it in the second story. She said, you know, every time she asked him for money, he said, you like money too much. Are you so greedy? Meanwhile, sure. Imagine. he has been awarded 21 million rand for that child. She was asking for 10,000 rand a month as opposed to 5,000 to look after her child. And he said, you're so greedy. The tables will turn. I'm certain of it. And I, and I believe that carte blanche won't let this go until it does. Absolutely. I do know that we still have a lot of energy for this. If they think it's something that we're going to let slide or get bored of, it's not going to happen. I'm just remembering when I came back actually from the LPC and how angry I was as well. I came into my house and I was fuming and I was huffing and puffing. And, you know, credit to our families as well who have mm. to deal with the emotional roller coasters that we go through when we cover these stories. Because sometimes you're just really low. I don't know if you could do that, but like, Sometimes I think about it or I've come back from a story and it's the guilt, it's the anger, it's the heartbreak, and, and it's a lot. But what I do know and what keeps me going is that I have to do this. You're right. Our families do shoulder a lot of the emotional stress uh, or the depressive hangover that comes from doing these stories. They I like that, depressive hangover. That's actually what it feels like. Yeah. And the, yeah. But then when they see it on Sunday, they understand. They're then they always, get it. They understand. Then they get it. I must say, my family has even said to me, please don't tell us everything because when we see it on Sunday, <laughs> we feel like we've yeah. already seen it. <laughs> yeah. All worth it.
all absolutely worth it. I yes. really enjoyed our chat, Govin. Thank you so much. So have I. This has been very, this has been very therapeutic. And I think that I actually have more energy now to go and demand more answers for what's happening at Ikwezi Lukusa. I know that you're you're ready to take on Sukunanduba. I am so ready. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Master. This has been great. You can find all three reports on Zuko Nonluba now on Carte Blanche, the podcast, under the following titles. Stealing from the Disabled, Finding Zuko Nonluba, and Justice Prevails. Meanwhile, our recent undercover investigation at Ekwesi Lokusa Special School, titled Egregious Failings, can be found on the Carte Blanche website. In our next episode, we speak to the producer behind these stories, Taryn Crossman. Follow and subscribe and enable notifications to ensure you don't miss it.